In the podcast, Nice White Parents, reporter Hannah Jaffe Walt, you may know her from This American Life, started looking into this one school in her neighborhood after her kids became school age in New York City. Hannah examines this public middle school, traditionally filled with black and brown students, after a number of white families arrive. And then, not satisfied she fully understood what she was seeing, she went all the way back to the founding of the school in the 1960s, and then up to the present day again. Eventually, Hannah realized she could put a name to what was getting in the way of making the school better all these years. White parents, nice white parents, is a fascinating listen that's deeply relevant today. It's made by Serial Productions, a New York Times company, same people who made the hit podcast Serial and S-Town. All episodes are now available wherever you do get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to 2020 Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. We are proud partners with the Sign Institute at American University in Washington. We hope to get back there soon. Uh, we have uh, another great show uh, this week in the middle of the Republican convention. Uh, but first, I want to thank all of you who listen, write us emails or tweet us. We love that you're telling your friends about the show. And please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Jeff Flake was a much-admired Arizona congressman and United States senator, the former executive director of the Goldwater Institute, that's as in Barry. He is a genuine political conservative, but he made a big mistake. He preached and practiced civility and bowed out of office, elective office, in 2018. He's now joined a chorus of former Republican officeholders, governors, senators, House members, former cabinet members and military leaders, Republicans for Biden. Senator, uh, you uh, and Cheryl are out there enjoying the clean air of the West, whether it's Arizona or Utah, but I thank you for joining us. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, Al. Good to be with you, James, as well. Thank you, Senator. Uh, Joe Biden, he's certainly not a socialist. That's a totally bum rap. But on taxes, spending, health care, he's well to the left of Jeff Flake. Why support him? Well, I, I think that, uh, for one, I think he will create and establish the civic space wherein Republicans and Democrats can start arguing about higher taxes or more regulation and actually have a real debate. Uh, right now, you, you can't have those debates. It's, uh, it's basically uh, you either support the president and his policies and his behavior and his conduct, or you don't. And, and that's, uh, that's not a healthy situation to be in. So yeah, I'll, I'll have disagreements with uh, Joe Biden, but uh, but I think that we'll be able to have the debate, and that's good. You believe that Donald Trump really isn't a conservative? Elaborate. Well, I mean, there, there are several principles that uh, have really kind of defined and have animated the Republican Party for decades: belief belief in limited government, uh, support for free trade. Um, belief in strong American leadership around the globe, that that makes America safer and the world better. And if you just look at those three kind of characteristics, I mean, we were running trillion dollar deficits before the coronavirus hit us. Uh, we've moved uh, away from free trade and toward protectionism. And uh, the president has attacked uh, these institutions that we established uh, you know, 75 years ago uh, NATO, uh, World Trade Organization, you know, later on, 
and, and those things that have kept the peace and have led to great prosperity um, for, you know, more than half a century. And a, a conservative wants to conserve and preserve institutions that work. And the president has gone against uh, institutions uh, here at home, uh, the rule of law, uh, separation of powers, uh, free press, those are those are institutions that we ought to preserve as a conservative, and and he hasn't. And then uh, most of all, um, Republican, I'm sorry, conservatives, if, if nothing else, have had a healthy mistrust of concentrated power, uh, particularly in the executive. And yet here we have a president that has exercised that, and uh, and a Republican Congress that has been quite supine. <laughs> And when, when it comes to that and just let the president run and that uh, that's not conservative at all. Well, that brings up, you know, the list of former uh, officials, including you, is is quite impressive. Uh, but among who, who are opposing Trump and supporting Biden, but among current Republican office holders, about the only one that ever stood up to him is Mitt Romney. Is this because they've been convinced it's now out of conviction or is it fear? Um, obviously, uh, they, they look at where I am, and uh, I, I would have liked, frankly, to have done a second term in the Senate. Um, I've been in the House for 12 years before, and I, I wasn't going to be a lifer, but uh, another term I would have liked. But it would have required that I, that I change uh, many of my policy positions and then condone the president's behavior, because uh, with one tweet or one phone call, uh, he can generate a primary in just about any state that will take any Republican office holder out. And that's known. And, uh, and I, you know, some of my, it's not, it's not just uh, Mitt Romney, some have stood on, on some other issues. Uh, I've, you know, wished that more would stand up if more, if more of my colleagues would at the same time, the president would wouldn't be able to get away with what he gets away with. But uh, but it's fear. It, it's certainly fear. To, whether you're conservative or liberal or whatever it is, the, the job of President of the United States, particularly as it relates to foreign policy and being commander-in-chief, requires certain amount of temperament and certain amount of judiciousness and wisdom. It is evident to me, and forgetting the politics, that Trump is not even close to that standard. And without naming names, that's 53 people in the Republican Senate caucus. How, how many of them you think shared a view that he's temperamentally and emotionally ill-suited Ill for the job he has? Oh, I don't know how you rank that on a scale or, you know, everybody, everybody is everybody. Every uh, Republican senator has winced at uh, some of his statements or positions. Um, some uh, agree with more of them than not, obviously. So it's it's a there there are some who are who are very disturbed and are completely quiet about it. Uh, some who are cheering him on in, in some of these areas and uh, have trouble with others. But but to a person though, I, I can say that that my former colleagues um, had greater aspirations when going to the Senate, you know, than defending the president, uh, uh, you know, his latest tweets or whatever else. Uh, most of them want to legislate. 
and want to have these debates at least and and have the Senate be the Senate again. And it, it really hasn't been for a while. So there's two views. The first view is that kind of the Republican Party is a traditional, as you say, a limited government, low taxes, uh, tradition, uh, socially traditionalist, slightly nationalistic party embodied by Mitt Romney. And all of a sudden, along comes Donald Trump and, and he seizes this, this heretofore ideologically consistent pro-American party. And that's one view. The other view is, is that the Republican Party has always been at its core a lot about racial resentment. And Trump just came in and spoke directly to that issue where others would not. And he, he was embraced across America by Republican voters. It, which one of these views is closer to yours? Uh, the former, the former. I, I refuse to believe that uh, that that typifies a broad swath of Republican voters. And I do think that uh, if the president is defeated, um, I do hope the best shot, obviously, that we have of returning to a a you know a viable political movement uh, is if enough Republicans say, "Yeah, we went down a bad detour there." Um, and uh, let's get back to, you know, the principles that have uh, defined and animated the party for, for a while that we've had success with. So, I, yeah, I, I, I subscribe to the former. Well, I'll just point out and, and being courteous, the polling supports the latter view. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> let's just talk about Arizona politics here just a, a little bit. Is there, there has to be some kind of feeling among Republican strategists in Arizona that, that the, the immediate future is not nearly as bright as the immediate past. Is there anybody that, in, anybody in the Arizona Republican Party that's uh, sort of sounding the alarm here that this thing is in danger of going off the cliff the wrong way? Uh, nobody in a, in a position of prominence in the party. <laughs> here's, here's, the, here's the quandary that, that we're in. Um, you know, when, when uh, John McCain was uh, in the Senate, when I was in the Senate, when John Kyle was in the Senate, there was always an effort to, uh, you know, recruit uh, precinct committee, committeemen and others at the local level who had a more you know, inclusive view of, you know, what a Republican can be. <laughs> to those who could appeal the non-Trumpian view, just put it that way. I got you. Um, and now without uh, particular John McCain there, there's there's just not that grassroots level. And I can tell you, it is increasingly difficult to convince your neighbors and your friends who are Republican to attend, you know, district meetings, precinct, you know, meetings uh, to right. put themselves on, a, you know, a, a local ballot. Um, when they go to those meetings, when all they're hearing is... Uh, talk on immigration or uh, the latest conspiracy theory or or whatever else. It just it doesn't appeal to them. So you have that, and then and then in the business community too, uh, they you know when the Republican Party is all about uh, you know SB 1070 or restrictive immigration measures, the business community doesn't want to be a part of that and shies away from the party. And then so in terms of money for the party to do 
uh, party building exercises, get out the vote efforts, it's not there. And so in turn, the party has to rely on the national Republican Party. And that just means that they are completely beholden to uh, the president and his his view on Republican politics. And it and, and then it becomes a, a cycle that we just can't break out of. And right now, the, Repu- the state Republican Party is just completely in the grip of of, of Trumpism. Uh, the, the chair of the state party is Kelly Ward, who, who is very, very much a, a Trump acolyte. Um, and so there's just no room right now in the party apparatus for any dissenting voices or anybody to say, hey, you know, we, we're kind of in a demographic cul-de-sac here that we're just not going to get out of. And so I, that, that, that's just not being heard right now. Well, I, you know, I'll just say for myself, Kelly Ward's more of a hater, perhaps, than John, uh, than Donald Trump. When John McCain came down with cancer, she basically said, get out of the way so I can get to the Senate. I, it's, it's just, she's a physician, it's just despicable. But Martha McSally, who was sort of a moderate conservative House member, when she lost in 2018, Senator, uh, for your seat, she said that she was a Donald Trump Republican and a John McCain Republican. That's impossible. That's an impossible act. Uh, and she lost, and I guess it looks like that she's going to lose pretty badly to Mark Kelly this time. She has a very uphill uh, battle, and and the the difficulty that uh, that she is in, and virtually any Republican uh, statewide in Arizona is to win a Republican primary, you have to be with the president, and uh, that almost precludes you uh, from winning a general uh, statewide. And it, it used to be, and now before you had Republican officials who would keep their distance, at least from the president. Uh, when the president would come to Arizona, you know, they would say, well, I, I just happen to be in Yuma, or I, I'm, you know, I'm somewhere out of town, I'm up north. And, and would, because they didn't want to stand on the campaign stage uh, with the president, when he, you know, ridiculed John McCain or or uh, you know, belittled uh, other officials. But now uh, it's, and that's what's been more painful than anything. Uh, we always knew where John, Donald Trump was gonna come from and, and who he would be, but at least you had some Republicans willing to create uh, some kind of distance and that's been done away with. And, uh, and I think that's the, the difficulty that Martha McSally and others have is, uh, you know, she felt that she had to be where she was going to be uh, to win the primary um, and uh, or to flip now and create some distance with the president would seem insincere. So she's she's in a tough position, really tough position. Well, you earlier expressed your hope as to what a post-Trump party might look like. Let me give you, uh, you know, a, a different view, which is that Trump, when he loses, and I think he will, uh, he won't go away gracefully. Uh, he, he was not going to be. He, he doesn't have Nixon's uh, uh, charm, uh, and he will say he was rigged and all that. And I think Trumpism will live and may still dominate the party. Tell me why I'm wrong. Um, you may not be. I, I hope you are. I just know that the best shot we have um, of, of returning to some kind of saner version, I think, of uh, Republicanism, conservatism, is if, uh, 
is if Trump loses badly. And I think if he loses very narrowly, it'll be more difficult for uh, those who are big fans of the president to, to say, hey, you know, he lost fair and square. They'll, they'll find a reason to say it was rigged somehow. But if he loses convincingly, then we may have, uh, have enough people that uh, in the party who say, all right, let's let's go a different direction. And uh, James, you you look at this stuff all the time, and you were sounding the alarm, you know, early this year um, on the Democratic side to nominate somebody like Joe Biden rather than one of the others. But uh, but I, I think I, I I genuinely think that if the president wins a second term, um, you know, there's some people who think Texas will flip this time. I don't. But four years, four more years of a Trump administration, if he continues with the type of politics and behavior and conduct, I think Texas could be blue, um, you know, four years from now, and then for a Republican nationally uh, to put together some kind of coalition to win, I just don't see it. And so and there, there have got to be enough Republicans that see that um, in the end. Uh Senator, uh, I'm going to close on a different note. A lot of our listeners may not know that one of your friends, good friends, is none other than Max Scherzer, the great national pitcher who James and I revere. You used to even sit with his wife at Nats games. Uh, is Max is going as strong as ever? <laughs> he is. He is. It's been so great to see. Uh, well, obviously, last year to watch the Nationals uh, you know, take the whole thing was uh, was incredible. But uh, yeah, he, I, I tell you, what a competitor he is. And he works so hard in the off season. And uh, um, I think it's showing. Um, I the, the best game I've ever seen uh, in, in baseball of, of any type was when he threw 20 strikeouts. <laughs> and uh, and I was I sat with John McCain uh, in that uh, in that game. He had and I and uh, Max Scherzer's wife, Erica, and watched him throw 20 strikeouts. And uh, it was the most incredible game I've ever seen. So I love baseball. I, I did too. James, I think on that, we all agree. We all agree. And please, <laughs> you see Max Scherzer tell him this is his two biggest fans. I just love it. I, I like it when he gets – I love to watch him pitch after somebody's hit him hard. I would no, not I, want to come after somebody's, you know, put a screaming double to right center because – it's not going to end well for the guy coming up next. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, what, what was fun to to, uh, to sit with uh, Erica, who knows exactly what he's thinking, you know, when somebody knocks a home run off him or whatever, and she'll say, oh, he's going to do this or he's going to do that. And sure enough, you know, they're creatures of habit out there on the mound. And uh, anyway, it was fun to watch. Well, they all should have Max Scherzer's habits. Uh, Jeff Flake, uh, it's so good to be with you today. Please give Cheryl our best. Stay safe, and I hope we'll see you in person one of these days. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much. That sounds great. Yeah, I hope we see you on the paid seat speaking circuit again because everything got to get (laughs) (laughs) There is one. Uh, Thanks again, guys. You bet. Hey, James, I've been reporting in this town for more than a half a century. God, that makes me old, doesn't it? And I have worked with scores of the very best journalists in America. I mean, literally the very best. None better than Jerry Sy. 
He was a great reporter covering campaigns, White House and diplomacy, foreign correspondent, the best bureau chief, and a distinguished columnist. Uh, uh, he, is, he, he also is in our club, James. He married above himself. Barb Roshevitz is every bit as good a journalist uh, as he is. And so it's great to have with us the pride and joy of Hayes, Kansas, and of the Kansas Jayhawks, Jerry Seib, who's the author of a really interesting new book that comes out today, From Reagan to Trump. We should have seen it coming. Jerry, uh, Reagan had right-wing views, sometimes shallow, sometimes not. But he, uh, in general, radiated optimism. America competing in the world, the value of immigrants uh, and uh, a, a global uh, engagement. And also, after 6 o'clock, uh, would have drinks with political adversaries like Tip O'Neill. That's, uh, we can get into the policies in a minute, but that's such a striking contrast with Trump, who basically radiates darkness, uh, anti-immigrants, and hates political opponents. How do we get here, Jerry? <laughs> well, well, that's the that was the reason I wrote the book. I was trying to figure yes. out the answer to that question, you know. Uh, but before I go on, you forgot to mention out that I also share with you and James' obsession about the Washington Nationals. So there's so much uh, connective tissue here. Um, did you, anyway, by the way, just did you just hear our conversation with Jeff Blake? That's, that's, that's what had me talking um, about on. Max Scherzer, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Who's from Missouri, Al? By the way, but I forgive him that. Um, <laughs> So no, so the answer is how did we get here? And you know the uh, the title of the book kind of um, gives away the answer to that question that I came up with, which is we we all should have seen it coming that this idea that I think everybody embraced in 2016 that uh, Donald Trump Donald Trump was some bolt out of the blue is not really right. The the seeds of Trumpism were planted years ago, um, probably first with Pat Buchanan within the Republican Party. You know, our friend Bill McInturf, a Republican pollster, said in 2016 that Donald Trump is just basically Pat Buchanan with his own airplane. And then you had a series of um, further developments in the Republican Party. Sarah, you know, Sarah Palin, Mike Huckabee, even Ross Perot, the Tea Party, that told you there was this thing developing at the grassroots um, that was basically not Reagan conservatism, but Trump, uh, Trumpy um, populism and nationalism. And then that slowly took over the party. And I think Donald Trump kind of walked through an open door in 2016. And to go to the, your question about why is the character of the leader so different? I mean, Ronald Reagan came to Washington, I think, and I was brand new here in those days when he arrived, to convert Washington and to co-opt it and to make it part of his movement Donald Trump showed up with this kind of uh, populist nationalist view of Washington that said, I I'm going to attack Washington. And he's pretty much done that for four years. You know, Jerry, I, I think FDR and the New Deal survived for decades and decades. Obviously, Democratic politicians adapted, adjusted. There were different policies. But even today, Democrats basically revere FDR and the New Deal. It, 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 it sets a, a certain touchstone for Democrats. I think Donald Trump has so taken over the Republican Party that Reagan almost seems a relic. Yeah, I, you know, I wrote a piece, I, I adapted some of the book for excerpts in the journal on Saturday, and I said in the excerpt something I feel stronger now than I did when I finished the book uh, some months ago, that you can't put Trumpism back in the bottle. Uh, I, it doesn't mean there can't be a, a reversion back to some kind of Reagan conservatism, but it'll be adapted to populism and nationalism. And there are a lot of smart young conservatives who are sitting around Washington and elsewhere in the country trying to figure out how to do that. But I don't think it ends if Donald Trump loses on November 3rd. First of all, as, as you noted earlier, he's not going to go away. And second, 
there is now this notion that you can't go back to Reagan style conservatism, you know, free trade, uh, uh, open immigration, or at least positive views of immigration, a robust American role around the world, that those things are kind of gone and you have to adapt uh, uh, the conservative message to an era of populism and nationalism on the right. Well, Jerry, we asked Jeff Flake this, but let me throw it to you too. Of all the Republican office holders, not, not the former office holders, but current office holders, with the notable exception of Mitt Romney, they all have become enablers. And now the Rob Portmans and the Lamar Alexanders should know better. Are they just cowards? Well, I think there, I, I tried it in the book to, to put Republicans in categories and there are the never Trumpers and then there's, there are the uh, converts. And then there are this, there's this third group that I refer to as the straddlers and, you know, people like Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and even Rob Portman fit into that category, which is they're not buying into Trumpism, but they're not willing to break with uh, the, the president and their party. So they try to figure out ways to stay in the middle. But as your question suggests, Al, that's a, that's a tough spot to be in. There's not a lot of firm ground in the middle between the never Trumpers and the love Trumpers in the Republican Party. Um, and they're just, I, my sense is they're just trying to survive in that um, narrow middle ground that's still there. Well, um, to talk about the modern Republican Party and not talk about race is like the guy said at the Dutch Economy, it's like having a firefighting convention and not talking about water. And I understand this glorification of Reagan. I just would point out that he called black males young strapping bucks. I would further point out that he opened his campaign in the Shelba County, Mississippi, and talked about states' rights. All right? I don't have no idea who, I'm sure that he, he was not a racist, but he was comfortable with them and comfortable with their help. And you can project forward. And, you know, we can talk about the pristine origins of free trade and Fourth of July parades and a strong military and a low marginal tax. I'm just not buying in it. I think I think that that is the dominant strain of modern conservatism. Well, look, I don't think Reagan was a racist, but he was a product of a racist era for sure. Uh, and he did you know, go to Mississippi to open his campaign. He also went, by the way, uh, when he started his general election campaign in 1980, the Statue of Liberty and delivered a speech that was basically embraced immigrants from abroad. And so that was really more the 1980 version of Ronald Reagan. I think that the you know, racial divides, that's a place where Republicans revert to. Um, and they're doing it again right now. And I think that's there's no there's no doubt about that. It's complicated when you talk about Reagan personally, because as you say, James, I don't think he was a racist, but you have to separate that from the Republican Party. And, you know, a better example is probably Lee Atwater and George H.W. Bush um, in 1988. You know, it was the year of the Willie Horton ad, and that was not George H.W. Bush, uh, but he went along. And that's where uh, that, again, you're talking about seeds of the current Republican Party. There's some of those uh, sown in there as well. Roger Ailes was Bush's TV guy. You know, everybody knows exactly who Roger Ailes was. In 1981, Lee Atwater gave an interview and said, you used to be able to say the blah, blah, blah. Now you just say force busing and lower taxation and everything. And maybe it's because I'm from the South, but I think racial resentment is the driving force. Now, again, I don't want to say that I'm sure Reagan was a nice guy, you know, but he, he, didn't, he didn't have much discomfort being around these people, and he didn't have much discomfort 
with, you know, giving these tax breaks to these segregated schools. So I just remain convinced that racial resentment is the big driver of modern Republican Party. Well, you know, James, people like you and, and frankly, President Clinton back in the day when we had a president who actually talked to people like me regularly, um, you know, sort of educated a lot of us that, you know, race is the great unresolved issue in American life, not just political life, but American life in general. And, you know, I think a lot of people who grew up like I did, you know, I mean, I'm a white boy from the Midwest, um, uh, liked to imagine that, well, we had a civil rights movement, we had voting rights, and we had, um, we had uh, the, the effort to use affirmative action to address uh, historic inequities. Um, and then we elected an African-American, uh, a black president. So we've, we're done here. We've solved this. We are not a segregated racist country anymore. And I think the, um, the stunning reality of uh, 2020 is that we've all, people like me, have been reminded again that it's not that simple. And, you know, that's certainly true in the in Republican Party politics. Um, and, you know, we'll see how this plays out over the next, um, you know, 70 days, but it could be very ugly by November 3rd. Oh, yeah, they're going all in. Well, um, you know, one transitional figure that you mentioned, you mentioned Pat Buchanan. Uh, I would say another, which you have a whole chapter on, very good chapter, was Newt Gingrich. Now, uh, I, I think Newt Gingrich, um, uh, I'll say what I really think is one of the great frauds in the history of American politics. But he's a very smart, shrewd, clever fraud. When I first met him, I had lunch with him in 1974, Jerry, and he told me he was a Linwood Holton Republican, a Rockefeller Republican, get rid of this Reagan stuff, we're, uh, we're pro-environment, pro-civil rights. When he came to Congress, finally, four years later, he kind of saw where the writing was, and he, I, I give him credit, I think he was the... He was the, 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 the guerrilla warrior who led the Republicans to victory in 1994 and then did nothing to create, didn't create any kind of a legacy except one of even meaner hate than existed before. And that also is part of what Trump has picked up. Yeah, you know, and in that chapter, Al, I quote somebody we all know well, Rahm Emanuel, who, you know, worked with and against Newt Gingrich in various ways over the years, who said, you know, the real end of the Reagan uh, era of the Republican Party, in my mind, didn't occur when Donald Trump came to power, but it happened when Newt Gingrich became the face of the party, that that's when you move from Reagan's sort of sunny optimism to kind of a much meaner, uh, kind of uh, a more attack mode uh, version of conservatism. Uh, it's also true, as you suggest, I think, and what I decided in retrospect is that the high point of the Reagan conservative movement actually was 1994. That was the high water mark, and that was Gingrich. But then, you know, within three years, it was certainly within four years by '98, um, it had all kind of been squandered. And uh, Bill Clinton uh, was still in office, and Newt Gingrich was back home in Georgia, uh, much to his amazement, I think. That uh, so it it went away pretty fast. But I do think 1994. Um, was a high point for the for the Reagan conservative movement, but then it became something different from the Reagan conservative movement. Well, I agree. Electorally, it certainly was, and Gingrich had an electoral strategy. He had no government. There's no Gingrich uh, legacy. There's no legislative legacy. Uh, the the you know the the, the plan for America uh, was you know great talking points, recycle as you point out a lot of recycled Reagan stuff. Didn't create any new legislation. 
and he ended up uh, defending birtherism. This is Gingrich. And he, one time, he called Chris Christie's office when he was about to appoint a Muslim governor, or a judge rather, said, you can't do that because all those Muslims believe in Sharia law. That is where Newt Gingrich has ended up today. But uh, in any you know, event, you know, it was I'll, I'll interrupt here for a little bit because you, you and yeah. I and James all know Lou Cannon. Uh, I revered Lou Cannon. Um, he was on the very first uh, Reagan reporting trip by everyone I on. Agree. And you, Al, told me at the time, uh, just hang out with Lou and do what he does and you'll be fine. He, I went back and looked at Lou's Reagan biographies as I was doing this. And he uh, has a passage in one of those books in which he says, Everything that was in Newt Gingrich's contract with America, which was 10 items, was in a Reagan um, State of the Union address a few uh, 10 years earlier. basically. Right. Uh, and so that's kind of that's kind of what happened there, I think. Um, and, you know, I, I think the um, the reality is that um, Gingrich is too much for even for his own party that he, as he, he will admit today, I wore everybody out and I wore everybody down and I wasn't a Reagan. And. That's there aren't very many Reagans, you know. I also well, he, say he, he he admits that, but he won't admit to his mean-spirited bigotry and and the hate and, and his hypocrisy. He was he presided over the House while they voted while they were impeaching Bill Clinton for uh, lying about sex, while he was, if you'll pardon the expression, betting a House staffer. Yeah, uh, well, I mean he he's I'll just he's the most amoral out. man. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll also note here, and this is a. Uh, this is a nod to James for sure. That it, when you go back and relook at that period, one of the things that strikes you is the way Bill Clinton and people like James completely outmaneuvered Gingrich. They took the middle ground away from him completely between 1994 and 1996, and certainly by 1998. Um, and he was basically co-opted and and outmaneuvered. And um, I don't think he realized what was happening then. I didn't realize what was happening then. But if you look at it through the rearview mirror, man, that was a master uh, era of master politics from Bill Clinton. Let me go. I think that you can generally say the Kansas Republican Party is not driven by racism because not that many <laughs> racial minorities yep. live there. But, you know, Al Flandon and Nancy Kassenbaum or Bob Doe. And it looks like they might be fractured a little bit. There's a Democratic governor because they reacted against, you know, the Brownback's idiotic experiment. And weirdly enough, Kobach loses the primary, but I'm hearing that race is more competitive than people think. I wonder if it's like these Johnson County Republicans or something that are starting to, to break off and Kansas is, no, it's not going to be a blue state, but it's going to just take something more than just having an R after your name screaming in the microphone. I, I think that's, that's true. Brownback damaged the party. Um, and Kobach, Chris Kobach, you know, the former secretary of state who lost that governor's race, damaged it a lot more. And you have a deep schism in the Republican Party in Kansas. The Johnson County Republicans, you refer to Johnson County being the suburban area around Kansas City, uh, has gone from moderate Republican to moderate Democrat uh, pretty heavily. Um, and you now have in Kansas what you sort of have in Missouri next door, which is um, the sort of the rural big uh, uh, heartland of the state. It's red, 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 and Trumpy, very Trumpy. And uh, around the edges, you have a lot of people who are not there. And so uh, I, I, I don't think, I think Roger Marshall, who's the relatively more moderate Republican who was nominated for that Senate seat, he beat Kobach in the primary. I think he's going to win, but it's going to be a close race. And Kansas is a lot closer to picking, to electing somebody, a Democrat, to the Senate 
than it has been in, oh, I don't know, 80, 90 years. It's a, it's a changed party in Kansas. And, um, Cause the, the ring, the Johnson, whatever, you know, I guess suburban Sedgwick, but I mean, they, they're, they're breaking. They're, they're probably you can't, it's pretty tough to win a Senate race in Kansas. Did it in 1936. <laughs> yeah, we won the governor's race, and we had Tom Docking. And yeah. It's a beast. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, I mean, it had it, some, some pretty good Kansas Democrats. Go ahead, Jer. Not many. You know, I had this, I talked to Bob Dole from time to time because I'm from Kansas. He's from Kansas. And he called me out of blue a couple of weeks ago because he, I guess he gets bored and wants to do political gossip with somebody. So, and I, we were talking about this Senate race and Bob Dole is what, 97 now? He knew exactly, he knew exactly when the last Republican was elected to the 97. Senate Kansas. He knew the guy's name and he knew the name of the company that he had worked for before he got into politics. I mean, this is like, is an amazing person and that's uh, just a Kansas aside, but you guys would both appreciate it, I know. Oh, J Jerry, I had a conversation with him last week. It was very, it was not as much Kansas centric, but he analyzed the current presidential race and he did it really, uh, he, was, he was brilliant. We can't thank you enough for your time. And I want to tell everyone out there, Gerald Saad, it's called We Should Have Seen It Coming by Random House. Order it thank, now. Thank you, today. guys. Don't see wait you, till tomorrow. Order it today. See you at, thank see you, you Jerry. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks a million. Stay in touch. Always good talking. Yes. Okay, James. Okay, we had a good show. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. I think the yeah. combination of Senator Flake and Sack. I'm just going to go back, and I remain fixed that my view that racism was the dominant driving factor behind Trump is unshaken, and it's unshaken that a lot of, that what happened was is even if people weren't, they were certainly tolerant of it, and when you let something like that grow. And I got another thing. I'm worried sick about these, the after, you know, when he did, during the day we have these protests and that thing in Wisconsin was just about as bad as anything. It's just sickening. And it's the same thing with the George Floyd. But the, the, this extreme stuff you're seeing it, particularly at night, and I'm told this is like being organized, this is not spontaneous to local people at all. This is troubling. And I hope that the, the governor can put an end to this, you know. And these people can go and protest and, you know, reform it in a way that's meaningful. Well, I think you're absolutely right. As I understand it, listening to people and, and watching people and meeting people out there, there are there are legitimate, peaceful, largely peaceful protests from locals during the day. And then at night, some of the others, the outsiders come in and that's when it turns bad. And uh, I have really been very critical of Bar and this administration for pretending these are all a bunch of, uh, you know, left-wing, crazy, radical rioters, because they haven't been in the main. But if there are out there outsiders, you're right. The governor ought to stop it. That's what you have a National Guard for, and stop them from coming in. They're going to stop shooting people, man. It, this, is, this is just not right. I agree. James, before we go, just one quick comment about Charlotte. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things one could say, but I want to focus for 40 seconds on one speech, okay. Pam Bondi. Pam Bondi, the former Attorney General of Florida, did a six-minute riff on how corrupt Joe Biden and his family were. Uh, you know, nepotism. It's unbelievable. It's outrageous. While defending Donald Trump, whatever small transgressions Hunter Biden and others may have committed, and I think he did, it pales compare, compared to the Trump family, who basically think this is a license to loot. But Pam Bondi 
I would remind our listeners, was, the, was running for attorney general in Florida when she took an illicit campaign contribution from Donald Trump and then dropped a lawsuit brought against Trump University. Uh, Pam Bondi uh, talking uh, about uh, corruption uh, is like the Boston Strangler railing against street crime. I mean, it really was outrageous. Oh, that, but that, you can't beat that. Kimberly Guilfoyle, I, I mean, that, that's one of the epic moments. I, I think what's going to happen, I think Q is going to make an unannounced appearance tonight. <laughs> He'll be, you know, kind of shady and you, you can't really see his face and Q will address the conviction to where he receives this rapturous, you know, 23-minute standing ovation. Oh, they'll go wild if they get Q. Well, let me just say one thing. They, their audience was down from the first night of the Democratic Convention, the first night. But much more important, their audience was overwhelmingly Fox News. And I watched Fox News for two hours both nights, except when my wife was doing the PBS interview, uh, which was a welcome respite. But uh, they are the true believers that are watching. Uh, they're being fed red meat. They're not persuadable voters. Uh, and that's and that's who they're reaching this week. So uh, whatever success they may or may not be having, I don't think it's translating into many votes. All right. Well, listen, it was a great show, a perfect. And we hope to be back with you again on Friday after the Republican convention with the guru of all gurus, the great Charlie Cook, talking about the 2020 election as we head into Labor Day and the fall. James, stay safe out there in the Shenandoah. Uh, and thanks. To you all for listening to 2020 Politics War Room. Follow the show on Twitter at Politics War Room and email us at politicswarroom at gmail. That's politicswarroom at gmail. Thanks for subscribing. Please rate the show, hopefully with a five-star review. Uh, we'll be back on Friday as we march towards November. Please be safe out there.